The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IONS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Today's show and today's guest is all about breath. So let me start off by referencing the Bible's description of God's gift of breath to life on earth. This is a quote. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. That's a verse from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. It describes the creation of, of Adam. In Hebrew, the word translated as breath is neshama, and it means more than uh, what the word breath means in the English. It includes the breath of God, the breath of man, and the breath of every living creature. It also means God's gift of the spirit, the intellect, the divine inspiration, and the soul. Well, 2020 seems to be the year we are losing our breath on so many levels. As a result of the George Floyd murder by police, tens of thousands of T-shirts and masks declaring I can't breathe have been sold. Also, by today's count, more than 166,000 victims of COVID-19 have died for lack of oxygen as their infected lungs shut down. All those people, some of their bodies still stacked in refrigerator trucks, deprived of their God-given life by the loss of their breath, intellect, and soul. Meanwhile, millions of others have struggled in hospitals, some on oxygen and ventilator support, to catch a breath of air. One of the major sources of regret for worried and grieving families has been that because of how contagious COVID-19 has proven to be, family members have been denied access to their sick and dying loved ones. The guilt can be overwhelming. How can we let mom, dad, our brother or sister die in isolation, alone by themselves with perhaps only a gowned and masked nurse that doesn't, they don't even know in the room there only to monitor their breathing? That question is why the story told by today's guest is so important right now, because our guest is one of many who have learned firsthand that we do not die alone. Almost eight years before the current pandemic, today's guest, Chris Keto, came close to dying the same way, not able to take a breath. At age 24, Chris experienced an NDE due to an allergic reaction to a bite of birthday cake containing peanuts. It took the next seven years before he had integrated the experience sufficient to be able to share his story and begin to make sense of his life. Chris feels that a transformation took place, uh, changing what had been his previous youthful outlook on life to a newfound spirituality and to a successful career. Chris was fortunate to survive his loss of breath, but whether or not uh, we live or die uh, under these circumstances, Chris's story lets us know a comforting fact, that we do not die alone. Chris, welcome to NDE Radio. Thank you for having me, Lee. Uh, it's wonderful to, we finally got this this communication all solved and uh, you're coming through loud and clear. It's great. Absolutely. Chris, it, yeah. It occurred to me after hearing your story, how relevant it is to today's pandemic. I can't breathe is everywhere today. And we are feeling isolated and separated and apart from one another, especially those who are quarantined in ICU. 
So please share your story with our listeners. Absolutely. I'll go right into it and then uh, I'll, I'll tie it back to what is, you know, as of recently, the theme for 2020, what, what makes it so much more important and uh, resonates even more so than it did a few months prior to this year with the idea of not being able to breathe and, you know, the idea of isolation and challenge and opportunity. Um, so, you know, go back. It's been about eight years since my near-death experience. And only in the last year have I been, as I feel, able to, to my best ability at this moment and constantly improving to speak about the experience. There were times in the past where I attempted and I was never able to get through the entire story. I was not able to find the words. And even now when I'm about to speak, there's a lot. And you hear from many other NDE experiencers, the, you don't, there's no language to really describe the feeling, the moment, and the experience of a near-death experience in the moment as well as the after effects and ongoing now. And you know, I'm still in process of integrating and I'm still healing from this. And it's something that takes a lifetime to truly understand and integrate and move forward. And, and there's little, little steps throughout the years. Um, but it took me about seven years to ever speak about this. So for seven years, I never spoke. I was fortunate in the sense that it wasn't a situation where I wasn't able to speak due to circumstance or community that I, you know, whether it be a heavy religious background or a conflict of no one believing or not having the opportunity, I simply did not have the words. And, and really, quite frankly, I could not get them out. Um, it just, I just did not speak about it. And then after about seven years, I, I was able to just kind of take that leap and still, to this day, I'm still working on the words, language, and processing the experience. Um, so to, to get going, I was born with a peanut and tree nut allergy. I, um, when I was very young, I had a small reaction. And ever since then, I, I always avoided peanuts and tree nuts. Um, it was something that I was very aware of, but yet I did not take the necessary precautions throughout my life. I would have EpiPens, I would carry Benadryl, but there was a carelessness with it because I never, I never ate a peanut. I never tasted a peanut. I, don't, I, I really have no idea what a peanut or nuts tastes like. Uh, never, never had them. And I never had a severe reaction my entire life. I just knew I had an allergy. And, you know, you do the scratch test when you're eight years old and a little bit testing before that and you avoid them. And it was fairly easy. I, uh, I took that for granted and I always had EpiPens, but many times they were expired or I didn't have them or they were in a cabinet buried behind 10 other things that were far away from me. They were never on me. I never had them with me. They were just kind of sitting in a bathroom drawer somewhere else like, yeah, we'll have them. Oh, they're eight months expired. All right. Well, next time we get to the doctor, we'll, uh, we'll just get a new, a new set and go from there. So fast forward, it's 2012, it's April 29th. I'm at a friend's birthday party on a Sunday evening, which, would, which is important to the story because it was a Sunday evening in Los Angeles at the time. And it was around 9.30 and everyone's at, we were at a, a very nice boutique hotel and they started to serve cake. 
and everyone was having a good time, enjoying. Cake was being passed out. One person was cutting it. It looked like a chocolate cake. That, that's all it was. It looked like a basic chocolate cake with icing. And I, I just was in conversation with someone, and I handed the cake. And, you know, when you're, you're in that mode, it's just you, you're not expecting anything. And when you, when you live with food allergies, anytime you eat, anytime you're in a social setting, you have to be constantly aware. And I did not have any guard up of, oh, there could be nuts or peanuts. I, I Before that and looking back now, I don't ever remember anyone having a peanut butter or peanuts in a birthday cake. It just wasn't something like you would find. It was very rare. You know, I knew you had to avoid, you know, peanut products, but I, I was not aware and I was not thinking. It was a social situation. You're in the moment. You're talking to people. You're amongst friends. You're celebrating. You're having a good time. It was a Sunday night, so it was relaxed. Everyone was enjoying themselves. And I took a little bite. I, I Maybe it was half the fork, a small amount in between talking with someone, and I put it in my mouth. And I go, what, what is that? And I, I thought for a second, oh, wait. And then I swallowed. And it was within seconds. It ju- not even seconds. It was within a quarter of a second. I go, uh-oh, was that a peanut? I kind of got the smell. Then I kind of realized what it was and what was going on. And I thought, okay, don't panic. You're amongst everybody. Everyone's here. You're maybe just going to have a little rash. Maybe your throat will be a little itchy. Like, calm down. Don't ruin the night. Don't make a big scene. So I just casually put the plate down. I went over. I got a little Sprite. I was like, oh, the caffeine and the caffeine, you know, the bubbles and the, the carbonated drink will help, you know, will help settle that. No big deal. I'll take a cup of Benadryl. It was such a minuscule amount. I wasn't eating a handful of peanut butter. It was the peanut was probably based on what was in the fork and that I couldn't even see the peanut in there. Mm. It it was, you know, probably a quarter the size of an M&M, if not smaller, a minuscule amount of peanut. And I went on. I I stayed at that party for probably another hour or so. um, And everything was okay. I was like a little rattled, you know, a little like, oh, okay, you know, rattled. A little uh, warmed up from that in that sense, but nothing else was out of the ordinary. It was like, oh, okay, let's hey get home. My thought was, hey, I'm going to get home. I'm going to have two Benadryl, and uh, we'll be okay, and I'll even sleep a little bit better because I'll be on the Benadryl. So I get home. It's around 11 o'clock. I'm all right. I'm still okay. Still a little shaken of the idea of having eaten a small amount of the peanut, and I then lay down, I take two more Benadryl, I lay down, and I'm just kind of laying there. And it's interesting because you lay there and you're kind of self-examining your body. You're you're checking your breathing and you go, (gasps) (sighs) 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 well, was that labored? Was that hard? Am I not getting enough info? No, no, I'm okay. I'm just I'm just freaking myself out. I'm worrying about nothing. Everything's all right. You know, the lights off, my head's down. It's Sunday night. I want to have a good Monday morning and be productive. Don't worry about it. You took the two Benadryl. And then 10 minutes goes by and you're still thinking, all right, am I, is this going away? What's happening? <sighs> all right, it's getting a little bit harder to breathe. I'm getting warmer. You know, I'm starting to get a little itchy. You know, I don't feel as well. My stomach's starting to hurt. And I'm like, all right, let me see what's going on here. So then I get up and I go to the bathroom and I flick on the light. It's all dark throughout the house. 
And I am red all over. My face is red. My neck's red. My chest is red. My arms, my armpits, everywhere is red. And, I, and my eyes are bloodshot. And I said, okay, this isn't good. The, obviously, the Benadryl is not working. And now I'm starting to feel my heart race a little bit more. It's getting harder to breathe. And I'm thinking, all right, what am I going to do at this point? And during this time, you know, panic is starting to set in slightly of I'm not going to be able to just go to bed and sleep this off. So I start looking for my EpiPen. And I find it. And lo and behold, it's expired by several months. So at this point, I'm saying, okay, I'm covered in hives. It's harder to breathe at this point. I feel it becoming more of a labor to breathe. And I'm checking my breath and I'm focusing on each breath. And I'm like, is this getting worse? Is this just the worst of what it's going to be? Or is it going to get worse from here? And I'm thinking, well, what's going to happen in 30 minutes? Is it going to disappear? What do I do in this situation? And I remember being in that moment of thinking, what, what is the best for me right now? Is it calling 911? Is it taking the epinephrine, the EpiPen right now? hoping it works, maybe it doesn't work? Is it a combination? Is it because it's a Sunday night, do I just get in the car and drive to the hospital and walk in? Does the ambulance that they're going to come and pick me up with even carry epinephrine? Are they going to get here on time? Are they going to get to the right address? Hmm. All these thoughts are running through my mind in this moment of what I need to do. You know, uh, to interrupt for a second, Chris, this is important because this is the sort of process that a lot of people coming down with an intense case of COVID-19 might go through too. They might not have the same exact symptoms, but it's the questioning, what should I do next? Am I really sick? Just as you've described it, this is, this is a, a very common process of what should I do next that people go through. Absolutely. And uh, it's, it's a very difficult moment to be in because you are at death's doorstep and you are thinking, am I overreacting? What decision do I make will either save my life or will end my life? And I need to make the right decision. And that's what I'm running through these scenarios in my head. So I decide to drive myself to the emergency room. It was Sunday night, so I figured there's no one on the road. I can get there within 15 minutes or less. I know at least if I'm in that hospital, they have epinephrine, I'm safe, I'm there. There's nothing else that could happen with the ambulance. And I thought to myself, well, I'll bring the EpiPen, and if I have to, I'll inject it on the way if I can't make it. But I'm going to do everything I can to get to that hospital. So I I start – I get in my car and I drive. Um, I <laughs> I start driving, I put the hazard lights on, and I just flew to the emergency room. And I remember just focusing on breathing and one breath at a time and taking in air. And it was harder and harder to breathe every single breath. And all I kept thinking was, stay calm, don't panic, you're gonna get there. A few more minutes, a few more breaths, and you will be there and they can help you. And once you're there, they can help you the best. There's not, you know, you're in their hands. Just get into the doctor's and the nurse's hands. They can deal with this better than anything or anyone else. And 
I just remember driving and I had the EpiPen on the passenger seat looking at it and thinking, am I going to have to use this? How far am I going to get? Let's see how far I can get. If I can get just one more light and not have to use this, that, that, that increases my chances of surviving because I didn't even know what would happen if I took the EpiPen. Would anything happen? Would I become so incapacitated from the epinephrine running through my body that I couldn't drive? Or all these. So I said, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna keep going and just hope and hope. And and I so I get to the hospital, I pull in right in front of I guess the what it what it, what now realizing what it was, it was just kind of like a emergency room door with a valet, and I just got out and I kind of handed the keys to the valet guy, and if I even really remember that, and I start stumbling into the emergency room. And I kind of stumble and lean into the desk and the woman, the nurse behind the desk looks at me and goes, do you have any identification? And I pulled out my wallet to retrieve my driver's license. And I could not, I couldn't get the license out of the little slits in the wallet where you keep your credit cards and cards. I couldn't do it. My body was shutting down. I couldn't breathe. I was covered in hives. I was a total disaster. And I just, I remember looking at my hands and like her and I'm like, I I couldn't get the identification out. And she comes running around, jumps up out of her seat. Another nurse runs over from behind and they just grab me one by each arm and about six to 180 pounds. They were dragging me back into the emergency room where the beds were. And I, I tell you, that was the fastest I've ever been seen by a doctor or a hospital in my life. It was seconds, <laughs> absolute seconds. Yeah. Um, and I just remember, I remember going down, putting, get, getting put on this bed. They cut my shirt off. They're starting to work on me. There were about six or seven medical professionals, nurses, physician assistants, and a lead doctor. And they just went to town on me. I had oxygen on me. I had, Benadryl getting shot into my wrist. I had the epinephrine going in through my shoulder into me and they're speaking to me and they're like, what happened? You know, you had a nervous reaction. They're looking at me. They're checking my oxygen levels, which finding out later, they were about one tenth what they should be. So I was suffocating at this point. The oxygen I was taking in in my breathing while driving and in that hospital was not, it wasn't circulating through my body. The breaths were shallow. It was a very, I wasn't breathing. It it was closing off. So even though I was attempting to, to, I was attempting to breathe and fighting to breathe, no oxygen was coming in and no oxygen was circulating. Chris, did they think to do a trach? Was there any suggestion that they would cut you open there? Absolutely, yes. So when I was laying there, I I didn't feel anything anymore. And I remember being here in this chaos around me. It was just chaos. But I just kind of looked around. I didn't feel anything. And then at one point, I remember the doctor saying, asking if I ever, you know, had a tube down my throat. And I, I didn't even respond. And it's been, I think, hearing back from the, the medical staff afterwards, it was a few minutes of me in this position, and the epinephrine wasn't working, and there's no guarantee epinephrine would ever stop an allergic reaction or really anaphylaxis, which I was in, because right. sometimes it's too late, so you can't stop the anaphylaxis. 
and it wasn't the epinephrine wasn't working and I wasn't taking in oxygen and I was becoming more and more unresponsive to their questions. And I wasn't, I, I didn't feel anything at this point. I, I was really in a, a very euphoric state, you know, euphoric feeling. I didn't feel pain. I didn't mm. feel anything. I didn't feel I was, I was in that emergency room dying on that bed with everyone. And I remember thinking to myself, why is everyone so panicked? Why are they, why are they moving around so much? Why are they, why are they so aggressive? What are they, why are they holding my mouth open? Why are they pushing my eyes around? Why are they, you know, mm. trying to move my teeth? Why are they sticking things in my throat? And I remember the ER doctor looking at me and saying, and he kind of just looking at me, he goes, he's like, I'm sorry, I, I, I can't save your life. And I thought to myself, I had really no, no reaction because I was so out of it in a euphoric state where I thought to myself, oh, I'm dying. This is dying. I'm dying right now. Mm. And I was okay with it. I was this overwhelming sense of euphoria. And that's the best word. I, again, I talk about the language. You, you don't have the language to describe. There's no language that describes a lot of these emotions and feelings in the scenario. But I call it this unbelievable bliss of euphoria that I've never felt. And I, I don't feel you could feel in this, this world overcome me. And I'm just, I'm just in this state of peaceful being. And he, and he says, I, I can't save your, your life. And I was, I was fine. I didn't, I didn't register to me. I, I, I knew I was dying. I had, now, is this when your, your grandfather's joined you? So right after that, I'm in this euphoric feeling and I thinking to myself or this really these waves of consciousness and knowing that I was passing away, I thought, Oh gosh, I'm, I'm dying. And I thought, you know, here I am on this hospital bed and I said, nothing material matters. Like this is what's waving over me. Nothing material matters. Kindness matters. Love matters. That's it. And then I, I never met my grandfathers. One passed away before I was born. The other one passed away when I was about two, two and a half years old. So I, I really don't have any memory of the, the one that was uh, that deceased when I, when I was two years old, mm-hmm. but I knew they were there and I'm, I'm in this position of having these thoughts and they're there with me. And it's, I know that's them. And I, I didn't know one of them. I, I bear, well, I really didn't know either of them to be very frank. And I just, and they just, they, they, I'm with them. And it's this, unbelievable, peaceful. There's no pain. There is nothing. And there's no sense of being alone or anything. It was, it was really a a very beautiful, unearthly experience in this moment. And I don't have a concept of time. And I just noticed everyone's around me, pushing me, pulling me, moving me, poking me. And I'm just, I'm out of it. And I'm having this dialogue, it's like a nonverbal dialogue of just these messages and communicating with the spirit, my grandfathers and them just saying, you can't die. It's nope, you got work to do. You got to go back. And 
there wasn't much more detail. It was just really those words. And I remember that very clearly to this moment. And at that point, I, I thought I, I felt okay. It was it was my my dialogue back to them was okay. It wasn't oh I want to stay. It wasn't oh please I don't want to go back. It was like nope okay I, I, I'll go back. Like done. You told me to sure done. No problem. And um, I I then remember the next thought after it was okay. I can't die. I'm not going to. I don't want to die. And I remember saying, I don't want to die. Nope, nope, I don't want to die. And I just have the feeling of zooming back into my body. And all of a sudden it was like, boom. And I, I felt pain. I felt everything. I, I try. I remember at that exact moment just coming back like a snap. Hmm. In that snap, I felt this excruciating pain and this this desire to breathe and grasping for air. And, and, and at this point I'm now verbal. I wasn't speaking for a few minutes at all. And I'm like, I need oxygen. I need oxygen. They're like it's on, it's on. Like, Oh, he's, he's back. He's back. We're getting a response from him. And I just remember clawing and like looking at the arms and everything. And I'm like, I need to breathe. I want to breathe. And I'm just fighting for oxygen and air at this point to, uh, to, to live. And, um, I then started to stabilize and I stabilized some more and the, the, the anaphylaxis stopped and the swelling went down and they pumped me up of some more chemicals and I stabilized enough. And I then they just let me lay there for about another six, six hours. So I was in the emergency room for about eight hours. So it's very interesting because it could have gone the other way, but the suggestion from your grandfathers that you should come back convinced you to make that decision, and it was like a participation between the, the three of you, really, your two grandfathers and yourself, as to whether you were going to live or die at that moment. But I, do, I just want to make the point that if you had died, you would have had company with you in the form of your grandfathers or perhaps other spirit guides. This is the amazing thing about near-death experiences. No matter how how the the ultimate outcome goes, um, there's there's someone there. And uh, and as I said at the beginning of the show, the important message for those people who feel terrible because they couldn't be with a loved one who passed on is they weren't alone. No, absolutely. It it, it was a aside from the chaos and trauma of being in that medical position and suffocating in the anaphylaxis the my experience with the passing on it's a very beautiful euphoric moment and if there's any comfort for anyone listening that it their loved ones are okay mm. as dire as the situation looks from the outside that is not the situation for that individual that's passing at the moment. We are looking at it through the lens of this reality. When we say, oh, my God, they're dying alone. They're on the bed. They can't breathe. Yes, all that is going on from the outside perspective. But from that person in that situation and from my experience having been there eight years ago, it was a euphoric, beautiful, blissful experience surrounded by loved ones and energy that I I don't feel can be replicated in, in on this in this realm and, and consciousness. 
if that, you know, to bring peace to someone of what really is going on in those final moments and in the moments of initially transitioning. Mm. You know, I I really also think it's interesting that for seven, almost eight years, you couldn't talk about this. And now when it's so important that people hear this story, you're suddenly feel free enough to, to tell people about it. And it's at a time when it can be most, most useful. You know, if, if you had talked about it immediately in 2012 and sort of talked yourself out about the whole topic, uh, you might not have been as, um, it might not have been as important to the world at large that, uh, you're now feeling free to tell the story of how we don't die alone. Absolutely. And I, I feel there's timing with everything. I, you know, like I said earlier, I, I never had the words or I, I never processed enough to be able to. And it's still very difficult for me to speak about. It's very heavy. And I'm still dealing with a lot of that currently and will for many times. And I said to myself to do this, if I can speak and if one person can benefit from me speaking in any which way they, they do from this, then it's worth it. And coming back from that experience, being so fortunate to walk out of that hospital when I should by all accounts be dead or severely uh, uh, impaired mentally or physically from this. And I, I did it. And I made a full recovery relatively quickly. Yes. It's an absolute miracle. And this is my, my give back to humanity. And I, you know, I had to come back. I had work to do. Don't know exactly what that is, but I'm going to start with helping people and speaking and starting by speaking about this. And right. that can well, bring some help. One of the places you're going to be doing that is uh, this uh, weekend at Ion's virtual conference. Uh, so um, tell, tell the listeners um, what you're doing there. Absolutely. Yeah. So I will be, this will be my fourth time being at the conference, my second time speaking. And this Saturday on the virtual conference, I will be discussing on a panel, the after effects and integrations of near death experiences into life after, because you have the NDE and then you have the rest of your life after that is, um, that you have to live and work and integrate the experience and make the most of it and, and live well. So there's a whole nother set of challenges and opportunities and understanding that goes long beyond the actual near death experience that we're still within the community really looking at in more in depth. Yeah. Well, Chris, I'm afraid we're out of time for today, but I'm so grateful to you for, for coming on and talking about this. And if someone wanted to get in touch with you, would you want to share a, say an email address? Sure. Very easy to get in touch with me. Um, I'm on Facebook under Chris Keto. You could send a message or add as a friend. That's probably the most efficient way. Well, my thanks again to Chris Keto, K-I-T-O, and his message of hope in a time of pandemic. For more about the IANS virtual conference, go to IANDS.org and join us. I'll be uh, moderating uh, some of the uh, speakers there. And uh, for more NDE Radio, tune in again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more of our program. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening. <laughs>